What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Welcome back to the Hive Jive. We are on episode number five, and Ken has been researching online. He's been watching videos. He calls me every day <laughs> with something new and exciting that he has seen online. Yep. Uh, and I have come to the conclusion that the, not the Langstroff. The top bar. The top bar. I saw the video of the top bar. You know, I'm sitting there. Okay, you still got a frame. You don't have to put it in there. It's like going to build in the frame. In the first video I saw of the top bar where they just had a, well, I said a one by 12, <laughs> yeah. one by two. He calls me up and he's like, John, the top of that's just uh, a damn got a stick. stick. It's got just sticks a stick. Up there. <laughs> well, it wasn't sticks. But you said they have to be an inch and three eighths wide. Exactly an inch and three eighths wide. And preferably 19, 19 inches, long. inches long. You can do 17. That's the so now, obviously, you can find anything on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, if it is smaller than 17 inches, so when you're looking at your dimensions of your hives and you're looking at a top bar specifically, if it is smaller than 17 inches, do not buy it. If it says it's 16 and 3 eighths or 15 or 14, don't buy it. If it is 17, that is fine. If it is 19, that is perfect. If it goes over 19, don't buy it. Uh, you, the, your sweet spot is 17 to 19, and 19 inches on the width is truly the best. That's that's the optimum. Um, it actually makes the inner dimensions of your hive 120 degrees, which is what the inner dimensions of a hexagon are. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of kismet. You know, it just kind of seems to flow for the bees. You know, after talking to you, I, I understand more. You know, on a your top bar. You have the sides are at a 20 degree angle. Pretty close. Yeah, the cut that you make on the board can vary depending on your equipment. But mm -hmm. yeah, between 20 and 30 degrees is the cut. What you want to do is when you have that bottom board and you've got the side mm -hmm. piece on it, that inner dimension there is what ends up being 120. And what, so what it is, is that's how the bees will keep it away. And if they build, the, and if you've, I've seen comb underneath overhangs yeah. and it, how it hangs down. They'll it, build it to the shape of yeah. their surroundings. Yeah, so they do. If you try to put a top bar into a Langstroth box, you've got this giant wide box and they will build their comb to the exact size yep. of that box, but it's going to be so heavy. They know that it needs the extra support and they're going to go ahead and make these little they call it burr comb, but they're mm -hmm. going to basically make little bridges and struts and supports to hold that comb up. And that's a pain. And if you do that in a top bar, if it's holding on to the sides and you try to pick up that bar, mm -hmm. you could rip the comb off of it. So yeah, I can see that you're on a 17 inch hive. They work really well and they do really well if you have an observation window, but I don't like them because they're inevitably you have more comb breakage mm -hmm. because the 17 inches on the top makes for a narrower place for them to attach mm -hmm. their comb but it's also a deeper hive so the comb hangs down further which is more weight on less support at the top they'll go through and they'll put that burr comb in there on the 19 inches it's shallower and wider so it supports the weight better mm -hmm. rarely do they ever glue it to the sides at all so you can always pick your bar straight up out of there but i assure you 
The top top bar is the way to go for the backyard. I mean, you don't have to get the extractors. You don't have to get so much. And but now, you know, the flow hive maybe for some of the backyard guys that just want to go out there and twist something and honey starts running out. Yeah, maybe if, so. if you've got the money and you want the novelty of it, yeah. then absolutely. There's there's nothing wrong with oh, that. I'm aspect. gonna have one. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, I, I, the but the backyard guy. The top bar is the way to go. And then as I'm sitting there watching them and they 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 start flipping the boards out or the sticks, they start flipping <laughs> them over and you're not opening where a Langstroth, you have to break their house down every time. Yeah, you rip the roof off every time you go to look inside. Right. You expose all of it all at once to all the air, the light, the wind. Everything hits their hive all at once. So all the, the conditions that they've kept locked in there, the humidity and the pressure and everything comes right out. Mm -hmm. And they're not happy about it. They no, don't want the not. light. They don't want the cold air. No. And so with a top bar, you just turn a couple bars loose over and look. Okay. Then you lower, roll them back, and then you go down here where you find the comb, and then you can pick that up. Okay. Well, there's a bigger one underneath there. It's in here. Oh, it's got some eggs in it. Yeah. And you, you're, I mean, that's the only way to go. You're exposing the comb in your hand, both sides of that comb, mm -hmm. and just the face of the comb on either side of it is all that's ever exposed to the air and light at one point, at like one time. Mm -hmm. So the whole rest of the top bar stays dark. It stays enclosed. They're able to, to manage it, and it actually keeps the bees more docile and calm because you haven't just ripped the roof off right. the entire house. I can so. see that. But I, I do understand why there's so many of your big guys use that because they can move them so much easier. Oh, yeah. When it comes to commercial beekeeping yeah. and honey production, the Langstroth is the way to go. Um, but for the backyard beekeeper or anybody who's in it for wax or anybody who's in it just for the bees, mm -hmm. top bar is way easier on you, and it's easier on the bees. It's yep. less equipment. It's 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 kind of funny. I, I get a kick out of it because I didn't tell you originally out of all the hives that I have, what mm -hmm. percentage was what. We we actually had that conversation yesterday yeah, when you called me up. Yeah. And the majority of my hives are top bar hives. So, and I understand why. It's just be so much easier. You don't have to get the extractors and and everything to do it with, and you're just not making the bees mad. Yeah. It makes it a lot easier. Now, one thing I know what you want to talk about today is where to how to pick your area. And this is perfect because yesterday, me and my wife was sitting there and she says, where are you putting the bees? That's what I was thinking about the backyard. My wife does the mowing. And she says, no, you're not. <laughs> We're going to put them in a ranch across the road. Okay. Well, I'll find somebody. But she says, you know, because she has been attacked by bees that wild bees that came in and, and built uh built in the cabins yeah um when it comes down to it bees absolutely despise anything that has an internal combustion engine <laughs> so yeah. your riding lawnmower your gas-powered weed eater those are like a declaration of war from the very beginning <laughs> it shakes the ground it vibrates their hive it spews gas and fumes on them and then it throws shit at them and, and yeah. they don't like that no they don't like <laughs> it at all so yeah and and then, uh, but now, no, this is perfect. Now, how do I fix, figure out where I want the bees? Okay. So the very, very first thing you've got to do is evaluate your overall landscape because 
you may desperately want bees, but what if your area can't support them? Um, I have had situations before where we've had people that are right in that transition zone between prairie land and hill country, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of rock, and mm -hmm. it's a lot of, like, our lovely cedar, mm -hmm. but that's it. There's not necessarily a lot of flower forage out there for them. So evaluate your land to make sure that through the different seasons, there's a lot of food out there for them because your one hive can forage over 40 acres. Their, their actual, if you put it into miles, mm -hmm. if you put a pin drop where your hive is mm -hmm. and then you go out a mile and draw a circle in a mile radius, that is their prime forage area. They can go up to three miles if they have to. So don't just look at your backyard because your backyard could never sustain forage for one colony, let alone multiples. Mm -hmm. So you're going to start off by evaluating the land, seeing what's out there, getting familiar with it and knowing what's growing out there. And then once you have that done, then you need to start looking at a couple of other things that they're going to need, such as water. And we don't really think about it. We think bees, we think flowers, pollination, mm -hmm. and honey, but they do need water. They use it to drink, and they also use it to cool their hive off um, in the summertime, especially here when it's, you know, we get that nice 100 plus mm -hmm. degrees for 40 days in a row. Um, they need water. They'll bring in more water than they do nectar at that time of year because there's no forage for them out there. So make sure there's a water source nearby. That can be a stock tank. That can be a pond it can be a stream or a creek or a lake or a lake exactly but yeah. if it is a stream or a creek you don't want it so close that it could potentially flood and take out your hive yeah so keep all of these little variables in mind when you're going through and looking at it um, and then you break down into other things like shade versus sun and wind blocks and if you so let's say you have two acres of land and on one acre you have a garden and you want your bees to pollinate that garden. If you put them right in the middle of your garden, you will see bees in your garden, but they're not your bees. Your bees are going to be leaving and going elsewhere and other bees are coming to your garden because the last place they're going to forage is right by their colony. Mm -hmm. And that is for a safety measure to not alert predators to where the house is. So wow. if you put them on the opposite acre mm -hmm. away from the garden, then they'll go over and they'll pollinate your garden because it's not right there with them. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of it's counterintuitive to us. We're like, oh, I got bees. I'm going to put them where I want them to be. But you actually want them on the peripheral, the outer, outer edges or the opposite corner right. from where you want them to be so um, select a space in your yard or in if you have acreage um, in the acreage where there's not going to be a lot of activity so your wife mowing to most every place yeah, if she mows every place then, then you have to, the yeah you've got to figure <laughs> you got to figure something out so what I did with my very first setup in, I had it in town in an urban mm -hmm. setting and I actually built a partition in the back of my yard. It was big enough that I could section a place off and I actually just made another additional six foot fence that came in and enclosed this area and made my first little apiary back there that just had two hives. That was it. And when you do something like that and you create that partition, it actually helps provide a barrier mm -hmm. both for you and for the bees. So then when you're mowing and you're edging and doing things like that, there's already a sound barrier and a visual barrier there to kind of help block that. You can use trees. Um, that barrier could be anything so long as you do have it. But pick a corner that your kids are not going to be out around, that your dog's not right. going to be out around, that your wife's not going to be mowing around. And that's the best place to put them. Once you have it set up, 
then you're going to turn around and you're going to look at the sun versus the shade aspect. Now, when you read books, most all the books are written from the northern states and they're written from the perspective of a commercial beekeeper and they want honey. They want the maximum right. honey. So they're going to tell you full sun. They're going to tell you the, the entrance of the hive needs to face the east or the south. And that's it. But in reality, where, where do you find bees in nature? They're going to be in a cooler, and they're going to be where, as it gets hot, they leave the the the, the flowers and. Uh, like like think about out there on your land where you've told me you've I'm had those thinking, swarms. Yeah. Where do they live? In trees. They live in trees, right? Yeah, and a tree is going to be always shaded. Yep. So don't necessarily like stress yourself out if you're thinking, oh my God, I've got to have full sun or I need to have this specific thing. Because in reality, think about where the bee lives in nature. It's a cave. It's a tree. It's, it may be inside the wall of a, a structure like your house, right. but it's not necessarily something that's constantly in full sun. Okay. So for us in the southern states, we do have a pest that is called the hive beetle. It's about the size of a ladybug. Mm -hmm. It's solid black. Um, it's just a nuisance pest. But the more shade and moisture that's around your hive, mm -hmm. the more of an issue you're going to have with that specific pest. So in that case, keeping it sunnier and drier will actually help kind of mitigate having a lot of those in there. But it, and if it's a Langstroth, it really doesn't matter at all. If it is a top bar, you kind of want all of your hives to be in the sun first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. So it kind of warms them up and gets them going. But then if it's the summertime and you're going to have hundred plus degree days, you want to find an area where about four o'clock they're going to start getting shade. Mm -hmm. So if you can put them to where they have some sort of structure to the West of them that will provide that shade coverage from four o'clock on, that's the best situation, especially for like a top bar, like what right. you're looking at. Um, outside of that, a northern wind block, if you do have harsher winters and, and big winds that come through, the northern wind block can go through and help that. Now, if you don't have anything, you can always build something. You can do just like you would for your farm animals. Right. You can actually build a wind block and, and call it good. On this note, you know, your legs are like, you know, a crisscross kind of sort of. On the top bar? Yeah, yeah. top bar. Uh, I saw one video where the guy puts his legs into cans to keep ants from crawling up the legs. Yeah, you can do so on the Langstroth hives. Um, there's a company out there and let's see. Uh, give me a second on that. I'm going to have to come back to their name. It's clever and I love the way that it is. But what they've done is they've created a hive stand mm -hmm. that is a metal welded piece that your Langstroth sets on and then it comes down and the legs, the top of the leg has this little basically like a rain guard that keeps the rain off and then it's got the same shape underneath it that is filled with an oil and that's what they're doing by putting things in the cans yeah. and you can do the same thing on like a top bar raise it up stick a brick inside a coffee can and have the legs setting on the brick but then have oil around the brick so an ant tries to get in there because they can smell that sweetness right. they're going to climb up the can down in the oil and they can never make it up onto the hive itself well, okay. so it is uh oh okay so the the people that make the stands it's defiant but defiant. it's like defy defy ant, ant. yeah defy <laughs> ant they make these hive stands it's it's amazing um, but they work so you can get it for a Langstroth yeah. or you you know if you're clever you can make something for a top bar but that's why it's to keep ants from getting in there well what he was using is just uh, like the the five pound coffee cans or the yeah, old plastic school. he just put a brick in there set the leg in there pour a little oil in there yeah, the, the oil, you can use a mineral oil. Um, it's a little bit better. Don't I mean, like you could use motor oil, but I would say not to no. for the environment. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's actually a great way. Some people don't ever have problems with ants. Um, out here, we have a lot of fire ants. Yeah. 
And the the thing I have the biggest problem with are actually the wood ants. And I can see that. they don't ever get inside the hive, but they get inside all of the wood. They'll right. burrow into the actual soft parts right. of the wood and then you you knock something around and suddenly tons of ants are coming out mm-hmm. and it's it's not fun. And they can fit through the little holes on the ventilated suit. That's not fun either. <laughs> so <laughs> then they're trapped in there so with you. Now, now you're finding out how to keep the ants away from your yeah, place. Yeah, then, and so, that's, yeah. And that, that comes to part of your hive setup. Yep. You know, how to prevent things and how to think about stuff. If you have a lot of ants and fire ants on your land, you might want to keep that in, in the forethought mm-hmm. of like, what are my challenges going to be? Another challenge if you have acreage and you have cattle is going to be the cattle itself. Mm-hmm. They love to rub against things. Yeah, they're scratching all the time. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they can push a hive over. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Now, oddly enough, when we look at a cow, no offense to ranch hands or anybody else, mm-hmm. but you look at a cow, you kind of think it's dumb. And you look at a horse and you think, oh, man, it's just this majestic animal and it's intelligent, right? But in a a weird little twist of fate there, if the cows start getting stung, they will run. No, I can see They'll that. get the heck out of Dodge. The horse starts throwing a fit, and it starts stamping the ground and swashing its tail around, and it just, just making makes it a, worse. Exactly, it makes a ruckus and makes it worse. So if yeah. you have horses, definitely the bees need to be as far away from the horses as possible. Okay. There, we have had many instances where horses have actually been stung to death. Wow. Um, because they won't leave the right. area. Yeah, they just make it worse. So, so other things to keep in mind where you're putting them out there. Chickens. There I I had chickens for a long time in my backyard, and the bees never bothered them. The the chickens were my they were basically my lawnmowers and my pest control. Mm-hmm. They would eat around the hives and stuff. But I did have one day where I had a small little nuke, a uh, little baby hive, sitting on a cinder block, mm-hmm. and one. Of my chickens jumped up on the edge of it Uh-oh. and flipped it off the center block. <coughs> well, that obviously you now flip their house upside down and broke everything. So they're mad. The bees came out and when they started stinging, it releases a pheromone. That mm-hmm. pheromone set off the two big hives beside it. No, no. Every chicken that was in the bee yard was dead within five minutes. Okay. It was the most tragic wow. experience ever. So while it is fun and while it is a very actually like calm zen got- thing, you have to keep precautions in mm-hmm. mind and it, it could be your animals it can be your neighbors mm-hmm. you know you don't want to do something if your neighbor's mowing their backyard don't go make your bees mad and then leave because your neighbor may be unaware so all of these things come into play when you're thinking about where do i want to put them yep. um, you have to have a little bit of foresight in there and you've got to be cautious just because though they are nice they can also be very mean <laughs> so, they're out there they have been dealing with bears and exactly everything else forever Ever, yeah. So, yeah, and to to them, we are nothing better than a big fuzzy bear. Yeah, I can <laughs> so, see that. Uh, let's see if we go beyond that. If you have the option, you want to put them on higher ground. That kind of comes back to the if you have areas that are susceptible to flooding, right? Or just places that are always damp because right. that damp area can actually lead to having more of like the hive beetles inside the hive. Okay. So have it on higher ground. Um, the entrance as far as facing east or south, that is actually good. And it's really just because the, especially like in the wintertime, the sun's going to be warming up the front of the hive and the mm-hmm. entrance and it makes it easier on the bees to then start moving and kind of warm up their muscles. So, but at the same time, if you can't face it that direction, it is not the end of the world. Yeah. I, I've seen them go where the 
they're living in a shed and a foot from the shed is a fence and I can't even fit back there, but they're flying down and going in. And I mean, it's, it's whatever works and what they can find. So east and south is the best on the face, the direction for the entrance. But hey, if you have to do like a combination or if it's got to face the other direction, that's fine. Um, that is, that's kind of it on like what you're looking for when you go out there and put it up. Now, most of that's from the standpoint of out in the country, right? Right. If you look at it from the standpoint of in the city, in an urban environment, you will have to deal with city codes and regulations. So we're actually in Austin, Texas, and Austin is extremely bee friendly and they will allow two hives per every quarter acre. Now that on that first half, that doesn't mean that you have to have a full quarter, anything a quarter or less, you can have two hives. Okay. And now you have to keep in mind your neighbors and your situation. So yeah, if you kids have kids with rocks, that too. So if you have a very tiny backyard, then you may not be able to because some of the other regulations. So there's, let's see, four main things that the city code states. The first one is the hives must be a minimum of 10 foot from the property line. Okay. That 10 foot kind of gives them that's that's your minimum safe distance right Mm -hmm. that provides that buffer zone for mowing and trimming and doing other things the second thing is they have to have a flyover barrier now that it needs to be a minimum of six foot so if you've got a six foot privacy fence that's wood you're good it can also be a solid hedge it can be anything that prevents you know the sight and the sound Mm -hmm. from coming straight in and that needs to be it doesn't have to be at the property line it just needs to be around the bees the other reason for that is when they leave the hive Mm -hmm. and they start to go out they have to fly up a minimum of six foot and then out so they're going to fly over your neighbor's heads instead of directly chest height into them or waist height so that's another reason for that barrier to make Mm -hmm. them go up and out when they leave your third thing that you need to have is a water source and the water source is Basically, it can be anything. Your water source can simply be a bird bath that you've mm-hmm. put some stones and pebbles in. Now, unlike wasps, bees cannot stand on water. They will drown. Yep. So if you have a pond and it's got lily pads or duckweed or moss even on the top of it, something that they can stand on, that's perfect. Um, if you make your own little water feature, you can put pieces of wood in there that will float. Or I've seen people that even take, you know, the, the self-waterers for dogs that have the big gallon jugs. Hmm? They take that so that it's full of water. They put rocks down in the water dish and it it makes it so that they don't have to refill it every day. Out here in the summertime, if you have a bird bath, every morning you're going to be putting water in it. But if you have something like that that you can fill up once a week, that works just fine. Um, But you have to have that. So the city's going to come in and they're going to say, okay, your minimum thing is the amount of hives per acre. If you have quarter acre, it's two. Half an acre can go up to four, three quarters of six, a full acre, you can have up to eight hives on it. The next thing is going to be your 10 foot barrier from the property line or sorry, 10 foot minimum distance from the property line. Your third item then is actually the barrier, the flyover barrier. And the fourth item is your water source. If you meet all of those criteria, you're good. You can have bees in your backyard. Okay. And it's now again, we're going to have to look, okay, what is there to eat? And then, okay, oh, there's a bunch of flowers over there, and there's, oh, that that lady likes uh, butterflies because there's a bunch of butterfly plants there, and butterfly plants are a nectar producer. Absolutely, and so, that's where you get your honey. Yeah, so <laughs> I know I've just found out. I was talking to John. John said, "I said, well, we got lots of blue bonnets." Okay. 
Blue bonnets don't make honey. Yeah, that dumbfounds people whenever you say that too, because here for us, the first sign of spring, like the, yeah, the whole like bonnets. winter's coming to an end, it's mm-hmm. blue bonnets. Man, we have blue bonnets everywhere. They line the roads, they line the highways. And at the right time of year, you you can't drive down the road mm-hmm. without seeing somebody out there in the blue bonnets. Oh, yeah. They've driven their car off the road and they're out there taking yeah. pictures with their family. And But the blue bonnets don't make nectar. They only make pollen. And it's still very, very vital for the bees because they use that pollen as their protein source to start raising the babies in the brood that will then be your, your nectar forage force for later in the spring. What about like uh, wine cups? You know what I'm talking about? The little purple flowers that are... We used to call like them buttercups. Cups. Yeah, we used yeah. to call them buttercups. They... Um, they do make a little bit. Um, your real main nectar producers for us in central Texas, it's going to be the Indian blanket, mm-hmm. the paintbrush, the Mexican top hat, and horse mint. And those plants right there, those are the powerhouses. Now, if you're a little bit in the southern part of central Texas, then you've got mesquite. Mm-hmm. And mesquite can make a ton of nectar and a ton of honey, but it's very fickle. So with a mesquite tree, if it starts to bloom and a drop of water hits it, it throws a fit it's like i'm done it drops all its yeah. blooms it quits right. it wants rain early on and then mm-hmm. once long dry stretches and it'll start to go through and bloom mm-hmm. there's some seasons it doesn't bloom at all there's other seasons it can bloom three or four times mm-hmm. it just depends on the weather so keeping in mind what's going on in your environment is very 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 crucial one of the other things people don't realize and We'll talk about like actual specific nectar plants and forage and stuff in a later right. episode. But something that people don't think of is the rain, because you may be on this huge chunk of land that's just overflowing with flowers, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's raining every other day, your bees are starving to death. Every time it rains, they can't get out. Well, no. Every time it rains, it washes the nectar out oh. of the flower, and then it takes the flower up to forty-eight hours to regenerate that yeah. nectar. So, in a perfect world, we would like rain maybe twice a week. Week, spread out about three or four days apart that gives the plants plenty of moisture and then it gives them time to make the nectar and gives the time for bees to go out there and forage that nectar if it rains more than that it causes an issue okay i can see all that yeah there's so much involved with it that goes way beyond what we think of you know in just the layman terms of oh, i've got a beehive it's the flow hive i have a hive it's in my backyard i'm gonna go out there and crank the thing yeah, and give me some honey, me some honey. <laughs> you know and then you find out oh you can't do that first year that's right It'll be the second year for you no get honey. honey in year one yeah so yeah there's a lot of things to learn and that's why we're doing this for i mean it's this is why uh it's something that we have to get back out and into the wild is the pollinators that's right and if you do anything to help pollinators it doesn't matter if your focus is on the monarch or if your focus is on solitary bees or on honeybees everything you do for one of them benefits a larger ecosystem mm-hmm. so if you're planting flowers for the the honeybees, you're also helping other pollinators that need the nectar sources. Um, if you're planting specific plants for monarchs, you're also helping honeybees and the and the native bees in the area. So it all goes hand in hand. I will never tell somebody, oh, no, 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 don't worry about planting the flowers. You're never going to plant enough for your hive because you're still helping the overall yeah. ecosystem for the area. And people are sitting there saying, well, why should we worry about pollinators? Do you like food? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. Do you like fruit? Do you like vegetables? Do you like bees? Do you like pork? Well, guess what? Everything. It, it's all. It's all it's in a chain. All tied up. You might. You might look together. at it and say, "Well, that bee doesn't eat that plant or doesn't do this." But guess what? Either something that eats the bee relies on it, and then something else eats that mm-hmm. thing, or mm-hmm. that plant 
may need to be pollinated by the bee so it can reproduce and mm -hmm. other organisms eat the fruit of that plant mm -hmm. and that's how they go and then something eats them and it's all connected it's all a chain you take a link out and it all falls apart what about grain most grains don't necessarily require the yeah. bee um, okay. it's kind of like how corn is right. self-pollinating it right. explodes and pollinates right. itself right um grain wheat which is actually a big issue for us because you know out in the central part of the u.s it's the bread basket mm -hmm. It's all going to be grains, and grains really don't do anything for the bees. And if you take out all that natural forage and you wipe out all of the, the native flora, then you leave them nothing. It's like looking at a desert wasteland. Mm -hmm. So they don't have anything to eat if it's just fields of corn and wheat. So, but if we got soybeans, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to necessarily say on that one because it's a pea. It is a pea, and they they do go through and pollinate it, even um, like rapeseed. So uh -huh. canola, canola actually can make honey, and it's a, it crystallizes very quickly. Uh. But it's an amazing, very sweet thing. But at the same time, what does that do to our ecosystem? Yep. And is it something that we need? Like I, I could say things when it comes to soy, I avoid soy like the plague. <laughs> so oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't that. advocate, uh, you know, going and, and planting a ton of soy so you can feed your bees. So I'd say native flowers are the way to go because that gives them variety. If you have one thing, you've got a monocrop, you have a mono diet, you're not getting enough variety in there to help cover the different nutritional deficiencies that you may encounter. So choosing the place for the hive, you want to make sure you have the right sun, your face, eh, it's not so much on the right direction. Sort but, of the right direction. <laughs> uh, and you have sun in the morning on the entrance. Then as it gets later, you want to get it brighter, warm it up. But before it goes dark, you want it shaded before it gets when it gets about four o'clock you want a little shade yeah on it. somewhere between four and six you want shade to start coming over the hive and you want to make sure you got flowers you got to have water source so yeah this is a backyard thing this is a uh ranch thing this is yeah i mean this is exactly what uh, a lot of people are looking for it gives them something to do and they can uh, if they can raise a dog they can raise bees. That's right. If you can take care of a pet, you can take care of bees. And if they need some help, they call you. There you go. <laughs> so I guess, uh, are we wrapped in this one up? I think we're good. I think we have we have covered even more so than uh, than was required. So yep. I think we've got it. We, we're done. So. Fifth episode in the can. There you go, folks. We'll be talking more about it. I don't know what we got the next one. You already it, figured? it may be a surprise. There you go. We'll find out. But uh, right now, y'all stick around or just keep tuned. Stay tuned. We will talk more bees. Mobies? Mobies. 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 The so, Hive Jive. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. We'll see y'all later. Be good. The show might be over for now, but the sting won't last long. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be swarming in with new episodes the first and third Mondays of each month. Until then, behave yourselves. Behave yourselves.